Take your Bibles out, would you please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. And while you're doing that, let me welcome you back to the third message in our series, When Love Comes to Town, where we've been talking about Jesus because God is love, so we refer to Jesus as love as well. We're talking about what happens when, when Christ is allowed to come into our lives, into our marriages, into our families, into our friendships, even into our community, the dynamic change that he can make, that he can create. And so just to recap briefly so uh, we can kind of catch up where we've been and get a sense of uh, our theme, we started out by talking about the power that love has to transform our lives, that Jesus has the power to change us from the inside out, supernaturally, his presence comes to live within each one of us if we're his followers. Then the next weekend, we talked about accessing that power. We said that in order to access the power of love of Christ in us, that we need to exercise faith no matter what our circumstances are. We looked at how troubling our circumstances can sometimes be and how it causes us to lose faith. But in those moments, it's when we need to stay strong in our faith because God is there, God is at work, and it's not about us anyway, it's about Him. Now this morning, I want to invite you to open up your minds and open up your hearts. What I mean is I want you to open up your thoughts and your feelings to three very important principles that come out of God's Word, which I believe, if you'll take seriously, can become a conduit for you experiencing like a like a a spiritual current of power experiencing God's presence in and through your life because that's what we all long for. That is what I long for. And when you're suffering, when you're struggling, you really want to know that it's there. And so I hope that you'll follow along. You ready? Then uh, let's get started. I want to start with Jesus and his disciples, love and his disciples. They're in the northern part of what we think of today of Israel. And they had just finished an intense time of ministry a little geography lesson imagine for a moment that my arm is uh israel that tiny swath of land in the middle east right now this is north this would be like where lebanon is south egypt and then let's say this is west mediterranean and then this is east let's say think about jordan over here jesus has been up here ministering he's now making way south to about where my watch is the round part of my watch would be the sea of galilee He's going to Capernaum, which serves as his base camp or his headquarters. So he's going back south. And it's a long, dusty journey. So you can imagine there's a lot to talk about. <clears throat> For instance, I can imagine Peter, James, and John trying to describe to the other nine uh, followers of Jesus, the other nine disciples, what it was like when Jesus invited them to go up on top of Mount, probably Mount Hermon, And they witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. It would have been so hard to describe it because it was so absolutely amazing. And then I imagine the other nine, because they don't want to be outdone, they're kind of left behind. I imagine them uh, talking to to their friends, Peter, James, and John, and saying, well, you guys are up there on the mountain. We were involved in ministering to Tons of people here who had all kinds of needs and there was some really intense spiritual warfare. We were having to deal with some real dark spiritual forces. In fact, one case was so bad that we had to wait till Jesus came back off the mountain to expel that 
spiritual force, that demon out of that person's life. And somewhere along the journey, while they're traveling and while they're talking, Jesus makes this announcement and he tells the twelve that he's about to suffer and then be crucified. But three days later, no fear, he will rise from the dead. And they didn't like hearing those words. I wouldn't have liked it either. But they're afraid to say anything. They didn't really want to hear it explained. Perhaps they're like, I can be sometimes, if I just ignore the news, it'll go away. But it didn't go away. It actually happened, didn't it? Well, as they kept journeying down this pathway, this dusty road to uh, Galilee, evidently there was a separation that occurred between Jesus and the twelve. Either they fell behind several yards, or he fell behind several yards, and they moved ahead. And an argument broke out. Now, I don't know who started the argument, but I can guess. And I don't know exactly what precipitated it. But one of those guys spoke up and had the audacity to say that he felt, based on everything he had seen and heard so far, that he was probably the greatest amongst the twelve. Can you imagine? I think, guys... I'm the best. I think I'm probably the most qualified in the coming kingdom to sit right next to Jesus and help him operate the whole business. Here are 12 grown 30-something-year-old men that are arguing about who's going to be the top dog, the alpha disciple. Now, do you ever think about things like that? Do things like that ever happen in your life, your home, amongst your friends, at school, or at work? Does that ever take place in your thinking and your thoughts and your actions and your behavior? Let me ask you some questions. Put it to you this way. For instance, do you ever find yourself concerned about your position in life? I bet you do. I know I do and have and probably will be. How about the second question? Do you ever resist someone trying to tell you what to do? How many of you fit in that category? Everybody, if you've ever had children, you know all about that, right? How about this one? Would you rather tell others what to do? How many say, oh, that's me. That's a whole lot easier if people would just do as I asked them to. There'd be no troubles in this world, right? Now, maybe you don't argue outwardly about that. But all of us have a little committee that meets on a regular basis. It's composed of our thoughts and our feelings. And our thoughts and our feelings tell us, remind us how unappreciated we are how undervalued we are because the truth is this all of us all of us long for significance and power in life and this was an opportunity being a follower of jesus being in his entourage was a great opportunity for one of these common fishermen to step forward and finally gain some significance and power Now, none of this went unnoticed by Jesus. But there's a time and a place to deal with such things. And sure enough, after they arrived in Galilee and settled in the home and got refreshed, Jesus looked at the twelve and he asked the question, So guys, what were you talking about? And I imagine him doing it with a smile. This is how I think of Jesus. So guys, what were you talking about? The incident is recorded for us in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. 
It says, after they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer. Awkward moment. Hey, James, I think he knows. Because it says they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. Silence. Nobody wanted to admit what they had been talking about because there is a certain amount of shame and guilt now that they knew that he knew. And nobody wanted to say, well, I was the one who started it. Everybody just kind of, I imagine, kind of looked down like this. And hope that he would kind of move on with the discussion. And I love the way Jesus handles this. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get up on a, you know, on a stump and wave his finger at them and say, you guys are despicable. You're so disappointing. I'm sick and tired of dealing with you. It's five steps forward and ten steps backward. I give up. I'm picking another twelve. Everybody go home. That's how you and I might have handled it. But not Jesus. Right? Look how, look how he responds, and in his response, we see the first great principle that I want us to come to grips with here today. It says in verse 35 that he sat down. Now, whenever a rabbi sat down in those days, it was like class is in session. They didn't stand and do like we do nowadays. They would sit, and the followers would gather around them, and then they would begin to teach. So it says here in the passage, he sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him, and said... Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Let's say it together, that phrase. Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. In other words, what Jesus was teaching them is that they must learn to become foot washers. Here's the principle. We experience the power and the presence of Jesus, of love, when we take on the attitude and the posture of a foot washer. Say it with me, will you? We experience the power and the presence of love when we take on the attitude and the posture of a foot washer. Now, why is that? It's because when Jesus says here in the passage, whoever wants to be first must take last place to be the servant of everyone else. In their culture, they would have been reminded and understood that the lowliest position in the household for any servant, any slave, was the person who was assigned to wash feet. It was the worst job. It was the dirtiest job. I mean, people didn't have cars back then, and they either rode animals, but most of them walked everywhere they went. And they wore either no shoes or sandals, or when they did wear their sandals, they were certainly open-toed sandals. And it's so, I don't know if you've ever been to Israel in that area, it is so dry, it is so dirty, it is so dusty, so they're just walking everywhere. They're stepping in camel dung and horse poop and all kinds of other stuff. And it's getting caught in their feet, in the cracks and the crevices between their toes. And then they, they either come home or they have guests who come home And that servant is waiting at the door, he or she. And when they walk in, he or she gets down on their knees, right? And they put the basin out, and the person sits on a little stool. 
And they grab the foot of that person and then they hold the foot and they run water over that person's foot, right? And then they take their hand and they start to scrub the callous heel. They scrub over the top and under the foot and in between the toes. They pour maybe some more water over it, right? And then they take the towel and they carefully dry the entire foot between the toes. Then they repeat the same process with, with the next foot. If there's more than one person, they spend quite a bit of time down there dumping the water out, putting new water back in, washing more feet until everyone's feet has been washed and refreshed. And what Jesus says in this passage is this, that the greatest, the greatest power, the greatest strength, the greatest position in the kingdom of heaven is not, is not the person who's up here towering over everyone. It's the person who's down here washing feet. It's the person down here who's lifting others up. It's not the person who's the master over everyone. No, it's the person who allows himself to be mastered. Paul spoke about this in Philippians chapter 2. Listen to his words. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests. But take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Because Jesus was what? Jesus was a foot washer. Literally, he washed feet, didn't he? But when you think about him on the cross, when he had his arms stretched out on the cross, he was washing us free And clean of our sins, wasn't he? He was forgiving us. He was taking all the dirt on himself. So he could take my hand and his father's hand. And join us together and give me eternal life. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Aren't you glad your savior got down on his knees to wash your feet? My feet? You know something? I want to ask you a question. Do you have a desire to wash the feet of the people who are in your life? Your spouse, if you're married, your children, if you have them, your parents, your friends, your co-workers, even strangers. Let me put it this way. Will you change your thinking from asking yourself, what can this person do for me to make my life easier? Because that's normally how we approach people. I mean, think about it. Most of us size people up as to what benefit we can gain from them. It happens in marriage, doesn't it? Husband and wives, we look to our spouse to see what they can do for us. We look to our kids to see what they can do us. Students look to their parents to see what they can do for them. We look to our friends to see what they can do for us, to the pastor, to the church. Everybody, it's just in our self-centered nature to wonder, what can somebody else do for me? Can you change that mindset to this? What can I do for this person to make their life better and to let them experience Jesus in me? Can you do that? That's an entirely different attitude, isn't it? An entirely different attitude. And if you were to master just that one principle, it would revolutionize your life and all your relationships. And the strange thing is, by doing that, you would find yourself elevated by others. That wouldn't be your goal, but that's what would happen. You see yourself being elevated by God. That's not your goal, but that's what would happen. If you were to make up your mind that from now on, I'm going to treat my spouse with an attitude of washing his or her feet. I'm going to treat my kids. I'm going to treat my parents. I'm going to treat my friends, my teachers, the person at McDonald's or Starbucks or wherever it is you go. 
that coworker, that person on the train. I'm going to treat them with an attitude of a foot washer. I want to tell you something. You'll begin to experience God alive in your life. God at work in your life because it's his very nature to wash feet. If he lives in us, he's going to keep wanting to wash feet. So a certain, maybe you need to grab a towel and a basin and a pitcher and put it in a prominent place in your home to remind you on a regular basis. If I was a jeweler, maybe I would come up with three little things on a chain and wear it to remind me. If you do that, by the way, I'd like 10% commission. Uh, just kidding. To remind me, all right, to remind us of what our jobs really are. But Jesus doesn't stop there, all right? He moves on in the passage. He wants to drive this home with a second great principle. You join me here. It says in verse 36, Then he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my father who sent me. I'm going to ask one of my little friends to come up here and join me. Her name's Madeline. Will you give her a hand as she comes up here? Hi, Madeline. Madeline and I are skippers, all right? And uh, I met Madeline, oh, I don't know, a couple of months ago, maybe earlier than that. When you know, we have our greeting time, there was this little girl who kept coming down the aisleway to greet me and handshake with me. We've been best friends ever since, right? She's my pal. So anyway, she's helped me out. Now, I want you to imagine you've got these 12 grown men, and somewhere in the midst, Jesus finds a young child like Madeline. Could have been a girl, could have been a boy. And he puts that child in their midst. Awkward moment. 12 grown men, here's this little child. What is Jesus saying to us? You have to understand that back then, children were treated as very insignificant, especially in the Roman culture. In the Roman culture, oftentimes when a woman gave birth to a baby, especially in an aristocratic family, she would bring the child to the father, and the father would decide whether he wanted to keep the child or not. And if the child happened to be a little girl, and especially if he hadn't had a son yet, oftentimes that child would be discarded. In the Jewish culture, it was a little bit better, but they were still greatly unappreciated. You can see it in a story told by the Gospels regarding the disciples themselves. Over in Matthew chapter 19, verse 13, it says, One day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could lay his hands on them and pray for them. The disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. But Jesus said, let the little children come. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. And he placed his hands on their heads and blessed them before he left. Here's the principle. Are you ready? If you want to experience the power and presence of God in your life, then you must value the least significant. Thank you, Madeline. God bless you. You can have a seat. (laughs) I just love kids. Do you get the picture? Jesus says, it's it's not good enough that you just simply get down on your knees and wash feet. Have that attitude. But I want you to have that attitude toward the least significant in the world. 
I don't want you to just do that for the people you like, the people who are like you, the people who are fluent, the people who have notoriety, the people who are fun, the people who don't cost you anything, the people who be so impressed by you that they'll turn around and say, oh, let me wash your feet now. He's saying, I also want you to wash the feet of the people who may, you know, who the rest of the world ignores, despises, doesn't care for, the forgotten, the abused, the least significant. If you really want to experience my presence and my power, pay attention to those people. They're the ones I have come for. Does that describe you? Does that describe your mindset, your attitude? Do you care about the kids at school who are considered the nerds? The ones who stand in the corner by themselves and are kind of shunned and forgotten by the other students? The people at work that nobody gets along with, that everybody gossips about, the neighbor who never seems to ever come out, the people who are down and out, children, students, the people who are mistreated and forgotten in our culture today. You know, I'll be the first one to say to you, I've been a hypocrite with regards to that in my own life. For the longest time, I could preach something like this, but I didn't, I didn't actually act on what I was saying until God spoke to my wife's heart because mine was too hard and called us to adopt a child. And I resisted that for so long, especially when I started to visit the places where these children were, where their parents were mistreating them, where the kids were, you know, snotty-nosed, hair disheveled, unkempt, uncared for there in Alameda County in Oakland, California. I saw that place. I wanted to run as far as I could get from it. But God kept speaking to my wife. I'm not going to tell you the story. You've heard it once. You've heard it before. But my life changed the day that we adopted our little crack baby who'd been forgotten and abandoned by his mother and father. God made me realize that that was a picture of me. He had adopted me too. And if God could love me and care for me that much, who was I to withhold that from anyone else? And since that day, and I still have my moments, believe me, I am far from perfect. But since that time, I've been far more sensitive to being aware of the people around us who just need somebody to love them, who just need somebody to wash their feet, who just need somebody to reach out and care for them. And that's what I want our church to become known for. I want us to be the church that marches with a towel and a basin and a pitcher in our hand, ready and waiting at all times to wash feet. So I've asked the director of our adult ministry, our new director, Steve Maddowick, and his assistant Jennifer as we re-fire up our, our life groups to add a brand new component to it. It's kind of been there, but we're really going to fan the flame under it. See, individually, I want you always to be thinking about washing people's feet and caring as God opens the doors for you. But as a church, I want us to make sure within our life groups that once or twice a year, your life group is out there washing feet of those who are forgotten. It may mean you'll go on a, a short-term mission trip, to Haiti or the Philippines or Vietnam or someplace like that. It may be something you do more locally, but once in a while, instead of gathering to study God's word, as important as that is, I want you to go out and be God's word. I want you to go out and demonstrate that love. We're going to ask every life group to have a teacher in it, somebody responsible to care for the group, to make sure our needs are being met in the group, and then somebody who's responsible for finding a service outside of the walls of the church where you will go a couple of times a year and just wash feet. 
I know there are about 700 of you this week who are going to be involved with feeding my starving children. I praise God for the fact that this is a church that's just ready and willing to step up the plate and make things happen. But I want that to really become part of who we are and how we're known in this site, our next site, and the sites that God would have for us down the road. Amen? Let's go wash some feet. Let's go show the love of God by not restricting it to any certain group or person. Now, you would think that by now, the 12 would have kind of learned their lesson, chilled out, been like, whoo, man, I don't want to do that again. Got to straighten out, know how to live now. But don't hold your breath. Because they're about to screw up majorly again. Just a few days after this. And you know what? I'm kind of glad to know that. Because I don't know about you. I'm amazed how many weekends I, I hear God speaking in my heart through the message. These messages I apply to my life just as much as I want you to apply them to your life. I come every week and say, God, what are you going to say to me? And I'll get all fired up. And I'm like, I'll make this change in my life and be obedient to God in this area. And Monday happens. And I have amnesia. Does that happen to anybody else besides me? I'm just so glad that God is so patient. I'm glad he doesn't take me like a little golf ball and go, I'm so disgusted with you. Put me on the tee and take his driver out and whack me down for a few hundred yards. And that's what's about to happen. These guys are about to blow it. By the way, when you read the scriptures, don't read it in such a sanitized mindset. Don't read it, you know, thinking these guys are perfect. They weren't. I mean, art does an injustice to the Bible sometimes. The pictures we have, the disciples sometimes, you know, these men who are kind of gaunt in the cheeks. They got a little halo around their heads. They wear dark robes and they walk around like this, right? It's how you see them in a lot of church art. These guys were anything but that. These guys were rascals. These guys were loud. They were arrogant. They were obnoxious. They're all over the place. And here's an example. You've got to understand the context, though, before I read it to you. A few days later, in uh, chapter 10, verse 32, it says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the twelve disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, he said, We're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Man, if I had been one of the twelve, I would have just been, ah, I just can't believe this. I can't believe this is going to happen to you. This is the worst thing I've ever heard. This is terrible news. This is horrible news. I can't believe this is going to happen. I'm not going to let it happen to you. I mean, I would have been just so overwhelmed. But not these guys. No. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Now let me, let's get to something serious here. Listen to what happens. On the heels of that, verse 38. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, also known as the sons of thunder. That tells you about their personality. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request, he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you. One on your right and the other on your left. In other words, Jesus, could you make us your senior vice presidents? But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. 
Then Jesus told them, you'll, under, you'll indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized in my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right and on my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. Now, to add, to add more color to the story, you have to actually look at another gospel. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20. Because this is a family affair. And Matthew gives us a detail that Mark leaves out. Matthew says in chapter 20, verse 20, Then the mother of James and John, the mother of Johnny and Jimmy, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? He asked. She replied, In your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. Surely you won't turn down a mother's request for her boys. Folks, this didn't happen overnight. This thing was premeditated. It was plotted. And when I talk to my Jewish friends who live in Israel who love to add color commentary to these stories, it is a typical picture, right, of the proud Jewish mom who wants something good for her sons. You know, in Galilee, they had an accent, it says, in the Bible. So I can just imagine these two boys and their mama coming and, and, and they're kind of talking to each other, three of them, and the mama looks at Johnny and the mama looks at Jimmy and she says, oh, I still wanted so many good things for you. I mean, I thought one of you would be a doctor and the other a lawyer. But here you are, following Yeshua, Messiah. I guess that's not so bad. Let's go meet them right now and get you guys the right places. For Pete's sakes, we don't want Peter in there. He opens his mouth and you know what comes out. <laughs> right? You say, oh, Pastor Dale, that's kind of like, I mean, please, you know. But seriously, can you imagine the conversation that went on between mom and her two boys? We got to get you guys in. I mean, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. Hurry up before Peter or James or somebody, or Peter or Andrew or some of the other guys get involved. We, I want my two sons, one on the left, one on the right. Oh, you'll make your mama proud. Can you imagine that? This is all going on while he's talking about the fact he's going to die. Now, when the other ten heard about this, they were overjoyed. Peter was like, you go, John. You go, James. And I'll serve right underneath to you. And I just, I love this. And Thomas was like, this is the best thing that's ever happened to have those two guys. Yeah, they're the ones. We read right about it. We read about it right here in verse 41. It says, when the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Fancy $5 word. They were ticked. They were hacked off. They were mad. Why? Because they want to be at the left and the right side of Jesus. And they don't want to have to bow down or be submissive to James or John. Who do they think they are? I thought we were over this greatest thing. You sneaky stinkers, you. Ah, wish my mother had got to Jesus first. <laughs> and you would expect that Jesus' response would have been, I can't believe you guys. I am so fed up with you guys. How many times have we been through this? I'm about to suffer. I'm about to die. And all you can think about, who's going to sit on my left and who's going to sit on my right? Well, I got news for you. None of you are. Out of here. You're fired. That's not Jesus. It's not him at all. What does he do in the text? Look at it with me. So Jesus called them together. And I'm going to guess he probably sat down too. And they're probably like going, here we go again. Then it says, Jesus called them together and said, 
you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. So he repeats the first two principles. Greatness is about washing feet. It's not about significance. It's about loving the insignificant. And then he introduces the greatest principle of all. The third one is in verse 45. Read it aloud with me, please. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the principle is simply this. We can experience the power and the presence of love of Jesus in our lives when we give ourselves away to others for God's glory. Say it with me. We can experience the power and presence of love in our lives when we give ourselves away to others for God's glory. Think about it. When Jesus came to earth, he did not use his power for his own benefit, did he? I mean, read through the Gospels. Can you find any place where Jesus exercises his power for his own benefit? When he's being tempted, he didn't do it. When he was being beaten, he didn't do it. When he was hanging on the cross, he didn't call down the angels to rescue him. No, he only used his power for other people's benefit. Now, if Jesus lives in you, do you think he's changed his character at all? No. He wants to use his power through you for the benefit of others. And to the degree that you and I serve others, live for others to the glory of God, to that degree we will experience the current of his presence and power in and through our lives. How about you? Are you ready to be a conduit of God's love, a conduit of his power, ministering to hearts and lives of others? You see, all of us have this tendency. We have a tendency to think about God's power for our own benefit. We have a tendency to want God to exercise his power for our benefit, for our health, our finances, our needs, our concerns, our relationships. And the Bible says that we should go to God and not hesitate to bring our requests to him. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but too many of us, that's where it stops. And we forget about the others. And a lot of times I think the reason why we don't experience the presence and power of God in our life is because it's so much about us. We're like the disciples. It's about my prestige, my position, my significance. Where we really find significance in life is when we make it about others and not ourselves. Say, well, pastor, I hear what you're saying, but man, my circumstances are such with my cancer, with my... With, you know, my finances, without my car, without whatever it is. I'm a student. I mean, how do I go? And I don't have the ability to actually go somewhere right now in my condition. But you can pray. Prayer is powerful. By prayer, you can go any place in the world. If you believe in the power of prayer and pray with great passion, you will affect hearts and lives everywhere around the world. But there's nothing stopping you and me from being used by God to go Places to come up to people and wash their feet with a smile, with a word of encouragement, with an act of simple service like mowing a lawn or shoveling snow or helping wipe down windows or going to the store or any number of things that just begin to allow you to demonstrate 
God's love toward others. I got an email from somebody just, just a, before the service. I was looking at my email, and it's when somebody was here last night, and they shared how they took a lily home, and they said, on the way home, Pastor, God convicted me. And here we go again this Easter doing our typical family thing. We'll have our great family meal, our great family fellowship. We'll all be warm and cozy. And the person shares with me, I'm, we're still going to do that. But you know what? On Easter weekend, I know a place in Aurora where there are homeless people who don't have any of that. And we're going to go spend part of our Easter ministering to them, washing their feet, encouraging their hearts, helping them. Whoa. That's application. That's taking it to the streets. That's saying, I want to be Jesus. And I'm telling you what, that's when you experience God's presence, God's power, and God's love. You ready? Let's pray. Father, this morning, how we want to bring glory to you. And the way we bring you glory is when we live holy lives And when we choose, oh God, to serve others for you, by you, through you. So I'm asking you, Lord, to speak into our hearts this morning. We want to see you. We want to experience you. We want to know you in all your fullness. So, Lord, through our lives, through our life groups, open our eyes and help us to start having a foot-washing mentality. To love the insignificant who are around us. And to give ourselves, our talents, our abilities, our passions away. To bring glory to your name. Do that for me, Lord. Do that for us. And begin a glorious change, we pray. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.